welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is about geriatric oncology. Progress in geriatric oncology. Age. Is age just a number? Is age not just a number? I'm not going to lie. There are days where I feel I am 75 and there are days i feel i'm 85 so clearly i'm always feeling old as opposed to young and i'm never going to tell you my real age by the way you probably know it already however the goal of today's podcast is really to discuss with you all the progress in geriatric oncology new asco guidelines have come out these guidelines address not only the fact that we can predict chemotherapy toxicity and other treatment toxicities in older patients with cancer, but also there are methods, there are measures that we can actually implement, and these measures could hopefully mitigate these toxicities and these side effects. These guidelines were created by many dedicated scientists and clinicians and geriatricians in the field, and I'm honored on Healthcare Unfiltered today to have three of them, Dr. Supriya Mohili, Dr. William Dale, and Dr. Heidi Klippen. All of these amazing scientists, researchers, and clinicians have given us an hour of their valuable time to discuss all progress in geriatric oncology and what led to the development of these ASCO guidelines. And are these guidelines scalable to all types of therapies that patients may receive? Are they scalable to all types of cancers that patients might actually suffer from? Are they scalable to all types of modalities that patients might actually receive, such as radiation therapy or surgery and, and, and other modalities? So the question is, not only how can we predict the toxicity, can we predict the various toxicities assigned to various types of therapies and various types of cancers, and what type of measures we can actually implement, because our goal is to improve the outcomes of all patients with cancer, and to do this, you need to minimize toxicity, improve efficacy, and we cannot do that without having more information to the uh, available for the patients that we are caring for. And uh, I really appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast. You can find it everywhere. You can also watch the episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. While you're at it, don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. It is available everywhere. Check it out. I promise you, you're going to enjoy the read and you're going to learn more things that you probably were not aware of. Without further ado, Drs. Dale Mohili and Kleppen on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking progress in geriatric oncology and the recent ASCO guidelines. We'll start with uh, Supriya, Dr. Mohil, if you just uh, tell us a little bit about you and where you are and um, and what got you interested in geriatric oncology. 
My name is Supriya Mohile, and I'm at the University of Rochester. I'm uh, duly trained in geriatrics and oncology. And now I spend a lot of my time thinking through these issues of how we can assess and manage older adults with cancer to make sure they have the best outcomes, both in terms of safety and efficacy of cancer treatment. I also do a lot of my time mentoring, um, and I spend a lot of my time teaching and helping early career investigators get to where they need to be with their research um, in, in geriatric oncology. Further, I get to work with William, Dr. William Dale and Dr. Heidi Kleppen, who you're gonna introduce next. And they're my what, two of my closest friends and I spend time with them every week as part of the Cancer and Aging Research Group. And I'll say I got into geriatric oncology. I was one of these late bloomers. I had no idea what I wanted to do in medicine. Um, I like to talk. I like to talk. That's why I'm here on this podcast. <laughs> um, as all three of us do, actually, we're talkers. And I um, like to communicate with people. And so I went into internal medicine knowing that there's a lot of communication with patients that happens through internal medicine. And I sort of fell into geriatrics uh, because University of Chicago, where I was training, had the opportunity to participate in an ASCO Hartford um, collaborative funding to train um, oncologists in geriatrics. And I had made a decision late to become an oncologist, really to help improve outcomes for older adults. So it was just fortuitous. And that started my career at that time. Heidi, Dr. Klippen. Sure. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. I'm Heidi Kleppen. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine at the Wake Forest School of Medicine uh, in North Carolina, um, also part of the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Comprehensive Cancer Center here. I am just probably the luckiest uh, person in the world to be doing a job that I love so much with people that I enjoy so much. And, and I serve as a co-lead for the Cancer and Aging Research Group with uh, Supriya and William, which has been, uh, I think, one of the most rewarding parts of my career. I have been at Wake Forest for a long time. I also uh, was a little bit of a late bloomer, as Supriya mentioned. So I trained in internal medicine here, trained as a geriatrician, spent a couple of years in geriatrics, and then was inspired uh, by the um, collaboration of research and, and clinical work in geriatrics. Uh, and really wanted to take that back into oncology to address all of the unmet needs for older adults uh, with cancer, uh, lack of evidence base, and how do we treat the ageism that we saw routinely and, and making treatment decisions. And so I then um, did a combined fellowship in oncology, hematology, uh, master's program, and have been spending my time on clinical research uh, with a similar I think trajectory, let's say, uh, that uh, Supriya has mentioned as far as uh, being interested in, in looking at geriatric assessment to predict treatment toxicity, as well as designing interventions to improve um, treatment outcomes for older patients. Uh, so that is my story in a nutshell. So glad to be here. Thank you, Heidi. And there's a, there's a lot here to talk about. I already The questions already come into my brain right away. But uh, William, a little bit about you as well. And uh, as you Introduce yourself. To tell us what is the Cancer and Aging Group. What what is that exactly? Sure. So um, I give Heidi a run for her money. Unluckiest person. I this field has been uh, fantastic for me, um, and so many things have gone back to my start at the University of Chicago. Um, I know three of us have um, ties all the way back. So. I got to meet Supriya when she was just deciding she wanted to do geriatric oncology and. I showed up as a new faculty member at the University of Chicago after all my ridiculous training there to both get my MD and PhD. 
So Sapria and I um, have known each other, I won't say how long, but a long time since she was a fellow and I was a brand new faculty member. Um, I also was lucky to be in GU cancer there. So I spent some time with Dr. Naban um, helping manage some patients, even doing some inpatient rotations. So, um, you know, I'm a geriatrician and a palliative care doctor by clinical training. My PhD is in health policy um, from the University of Chicago. Um, I'm now at the City of Hope National Medical Center. Um, I'm the vice chair for academic affairs for the Department of Supportive Care Medicine and the director of our Center for Cancer and Aging. Um, I'd be remiss not to mention uh, Arthi Huria, who was here at City of Hope and, you know, is really the, you know, founding uh, godmother said in all um, sincere appreciation for everything she did. I, I came to City of Hope in part to work with Arthi and um, her death was tragic, but it um, she really sort of inspired all of us. So that brings us in some ways to the Cancer and Aging Research Group, which uh, the three of us um, have been overseeing in the um, gra grassroots way we do. So the Cancer and Aging Research Group online at mycar.org really has brought together people from across the country because one of the challenges is a lot of people have interests in older adults and cancer, but they don't necessarily have both at their own institution and they don't necessarily have the kind of mentorship they might need. And that was in really why CARD was developed and formed. Um, we would proudly say that it started with 10 people um, back in 2006. Uh, we just crossed uh, 600 members of CARG nationally now, um, and our infrastructure grant from NIH, this R33 infrastructure grant, was just refunded. So we have um, a number of people um, more interested in the field, and anybody who is can certainly go to the website. Um, my my story, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested deeply in the decision-making that goes into cancer and aging. So there's all these trade-offs that we often have to make. And it's not as easy to decide that simply extending life is the foremost goal for all of our patients, but all the trade-offs between the cancer, the treatment, and the decisions that have to be made in that field is what's really drawn me into the field. So... I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, and you know, I think I think probably I'll ask the the simplest question. But but Supriya, is there like an age cutoff for geriatric oncology? I mean, is there by which if you're over X years of age, then you should be cared for by a geriatrician? Versus if you're younger than that age, you don't need that. It just seems arbitrary. So it help us arbitrary. understand. Yeah. <laughs> Shadi, it is arbitrary. That's why I think as geriatricians, we are moving away from chronologic age. And I, I think none of us truly believe there's a specific chronologic age that defines someone as quote unquote old. Uh, we see patients of all different fitness levels. And I think in geriatric oncology, we focus on overall health and fitness. I think because of Medicare rules, et cetera, you know, 65 has often been thought of as the chronologic age that defines someone as geriatric, but we know that that's changing and that older adults into their 80s and 90s are super healthy these days, given that we're, that as a medical society, you know, society, we're improving outcomes from chronic diseases. And so we really focus on fitness. Um, and I think geri geriatricians 
are um, equipped and learn how to think about complexity. So we're equipped at thinking about cancer in the context of, of other issues and not cancer as a single entity um, for a patient. And that's, I think, what, uh, so for those patients that have other issues, whether it be disability, comorbidities, or um, functional issues, you know, having them see someone who has expertise in this area or get a geriatric assessment with their primary team can be very helpful to them. But but, but Heidi, I mean, I think there's, I know we talk about fitness all the time. I, I get that, believe me. And we always have this 90 year old patient who's really so fit and all of this. But for the most part, I mean, age is going to have a toll on all of us. I mean, I mean, it's not for anything that we have done, but you know, kidney function at the age of 80 is not the same at the age of 40. Even the way we calculate GFR, we have to put the age and and all of these things. Metabolism changes, not because I mean we can have to stay fit and exercise as much as possible, but your metabolism changes. Um it's unlikely that uh, I'm sure there's somebody who can run a marathon at the age of 80, but if you take the entire eight-year-old population, most of them cannot run that vigorously. So so I know we say age is just a number, but is it really just a number? <laughs> Johnny, that's a, that's a great question. And I I think you're spot on in, in the real challenge and the reason we need to conduct geriatric assessments more routinely for older adults with cancer is that age does matter. <laughs> as you pointed out. I mean, the biology of aging is affecting all of us. You know, my knees hurt this morning. <laughs> I got up. That's the biology of aging. Um, and I need to exercise. Um, but how they affect the function and sort of the phenotype of aging for each person of the same chronologic age is very different. So using age as sort of your ballpark, you know, you're 80 and therefore I'm not going to treat you with this standard treatment versus well, age doesn't matter and you seem to be okay when you walked in the room. So I'm gonna give you, you know, for drug therapy, we know from trial after trial and study after study that that's not enough. That's not an appropriate assessment to help personalize care because of the heterogeneity. So I always give an anecdote, anecdote uh, to my trainees that, so my clinic, I did use a chronologic cutoff for my geriatric oncology clinic and I use 75 and older. And that was to sort of, we know that aging related conditions increase in prevalence as we get older and certainly particularly as you get past age 70 and 75. So I chose that cutoff for people who come to my clinic for cancer care. And so most of my patients are 80 to 90 <laughs> years of age. I have three patients in a room in the hallway. Each can be the same age and they are completely different with respect to their function. You know, one person is clearly frail in a wheelchair. We need to have a very personalized treatment plan. Um, the next room, same age, that patient is chiding me for not being at the gym at five in the morning with them, you know, which I had some excuse for. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's why it's so important for us to apply a standardized approach to say, let us understand, you know, how aging physiology has affected you and how, if you have those vulnerabilities, we need to take that into consideration when we prescribe cancer treatment or design a survivorship plan for you. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I have to tell you, though, I mean, I know if you follow William on Twitter or Instagram, he's always hiking. This man is never going to age. So I think it's different. <laughs> you don't qualify. But 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 William, so let's say a medical oncologist is in clinic. When when do you when do you need to be called in? Like, is it a, 
is it i know we talk about integrative care but uh, take a random physician who is seeing patients with breast cancer and is there a particular time where they should pick up the phone and call a geriatric oncologist to consult with or you guys need to have your own clinic of yeah. patients that are, you know what i mean i'm trying to figure out how this fits in the cancer care ecosystem yeah it's that's a really um good and fundamental question which is we now have a lot of evidence that doing these geriatric assessments can fulfill a number of things and probably should be done for most older adults in order to identify a individualized plan, whether they're extremely fit, as um, Heidi said, or, or frail, or really it's the vast majority who are kind of in the middle. They have some things, they don't have others. You can't just look at them and figure it out. So you can do the assessments and then make decisions. And so most patients over a certain age, whether it's 65 or 70 or 75, should have the assessments in any clinic. Oncologists, to point out, don't have to do this themselves. Most of the assessments can be done by somebody else in the clinic. Once you have that information, then we can act on it in various ways, whether it's targeting an intervention or it's making a different decision for somebody. Um, and that does require a little bit of understanding and knowledge on behalf of the person who's digesting the information. And so um, to put it into your the context of, well, what about my clinic, right? Is there some universal approach? Do I have to send everybody to a geriatrician? Um, I'm always reminded of one of our mentors, Harvey Cohen. So Harvey used to always tell us, we're asking him like, how do we set up these clinics? And he'd, you know, he'd say, if you've seen one geriatric oncology clinic, you've seen one geriatric oncology clinic. <laughs> um, and his point was, everybody's placed in a little bit of a different context and the implementation, how to use it can be different, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It means if you're in an academic center with a lot more opportunities to refer to a geriatrician, you can screen and refer the patients who will benefit the most and maybe other patients who maybe need a physical therapist or social worker do your referrals. On the other end, um, community oncologists may not have all of those opportunities and they'll say, well, how is this valuable for me? I'm gonna find out all these things I can't do anything about. That's not really right. And what we can do in that context is identify what they can do and almost everyone can make a different decision about a patient once they have the information around what deficits might they have? What is their likelihood of having toxicity? Are they having cognitive issues? And then make a decision about their cancer care. So you really have to put it in context, but the one thing not to do is assume that you know, without a geriatric assessment, what the right thing to do is. So I'm going to talk about various concepts because I think there's so much to talk about and we have limited time. I'm going to start by the geriatric assessment. So Supriya, the, what is that? Simplify it for folks. What is actually geriatric assessment, comprehensive geriatric assessment? Sure. Uh, what are we talking about exactly? Yeah, so there's three different ways to think about geriatrics, actually four different ways to think about geriatric assessment. Uh, geriatric assessment, we, you've heard us all talk about it already, is what our sort of bread and butter. We really believe that it provides more objective data to guide 
um, our understanding as clinicians about fitness for any patients who are older, who have other uh, medical problems outside of cancer. In fact, the assessments we use in, in geriatric assessment have been now being used for um, survivors of childhood cancer because it picks up these sort of different conditions that can be survivorship issues for younger patients even. And so it's kind of moving into that area. But geriatric assessment has a few components. One is a patient reported outcome component. So these are just standard validated surveys that we provide to patients that give us information about activities of daily living, ability of an older adult to care for oneself, and instrumental activities of daily living, ability of an older adult to care for themselves in the community. And, um, and then also we do physical performance tests, um, which are optional depending on resources, but things like gait speed, balance tests, uh, strength tests, uh, timed up and go is an example where we ask a, a patient to stand up and walk and come back to a chair. Um, and then cognition is what we don't, I think, do very well in oncology in general, a standard way of assessing cognitive abilities, uh, using a screening test is very important. I will tell you, I had a patient yesterday in clinic. I cannot tell somebody, you know, somebody has a cognitive impairment. And then when I had this patient draw a clock, she was unable to draw the clock and she was scheduled for chemotherapy next week. This is a patient with metastatic pancreatic cancer was getting first line treatment. And so, you know, not being able to draw a clock is very concerning because that patient is going to be at risk for delirium and also may not be able to report side effects from treatment. And so adapting treatment to that person is very important. So that's the main, main component, patient reported outcome assessment, and then an objective assessment. And with that information, we can either change our and adapt our treatment plans, and then we can also institute supportive care measures. There are also screening tools. So geriatric screening tools are a little bit different than the whole assessment. Um, and these are short tools that give us a lot of information that if you don't have time to do like a full assessment, they still have predictive ability for outcomes. And a comprehensive geriatric assessment includes the management. So if you're just doing geriatric assessment, it's really just about capturing the information. If you include management and you're doing something with the results, then that's a comprehensive geriatric assessment. But, but Heidi, the, you know, there are so many cancers and so many treatments out there, right? I mean, I mean, Supriya gave us an example of pancreatic cancer patients, a patient who's undergoing chemotherapy. But, you know, some patients may have breast cancer that is curable versus metastatic. You could have lymphoma, maybe it's leukemia. You, you've got so many cancers, so many therapies, so many modalities, radiation, surgery, chemotherapy. Is geriatric assessment and comprehensive assessment scalable to all of these modalities? Are you able to tell me if there's a woman with breast cancer who's going to need surgery and radiotherapy for DCIS, let's say, and she's 80, that will be the same assessment for someone with metastatic pancreas cancer? So I'll, I'll give you the short answer to the, is it scalable to all the modalities? And the answer to that is yes. So we have good data now across multiple modalities, surgery, radiation, and a lot of data with systemic therapy, which is all detailed in the, at least in a summary fashion in the guideline manuscript that will be coming out that shows consistently that a geriatric assessment will provide information that can be utilized to inform the management of patients in any of those settings. And so the key there is the piece that Supriya just talked about, which is that when you know more, 
about your patient and you know that they have, now you know they have cognitive impairment, which you didn't know when you came up with their initial treatment plan. That doesn't mean you're not gonna treat that patient, but you are gonna treat them differently as far as how you manage, how you provide information, how you engage the caregiver, how you try to prevent some of those side effects that might be now more likely if someone isn't able to remember some of the instructions, right? So how do you anticipate that and use your care team and your communication to try and minimize, or maybe you need to make a slightly different choice about the treatment regimen that you have come up with, right? This is not a good regimen. I don't need five oral (laughs) medications in a very complicated schema, I need to do something different where we know we can still treat effectively and take this into account. So you can apply that piece of it to every setting. And we have good data and there are randomized trials now that show that outcomes are improved. And that's the piece that was not there five years ago. We had all the prognostic data in all these settings. Bad stuff's going to happen if you have these vulnerabilities, but not the we can change your outcome data. And now we have that. You know, we have data that your toxicity will be lower. Even if you as an oncologist just have this information, you just get the information that says there are these vulnerabilities, you're going to make different plans because now you know something you're going to adjust in your planning and toxicity is decreased, hospitalizations are decreased, satisfaction is better. I mean, all of these really important outcomes that our patients care about. So it is scalable. I think the, the nuance that you were probably getting at is that which specific measures are most prognostic of a given outcome, those do differ a little bit in each setting. So I've done a lot of research in AML. And so in acute myeloid leukemia, there are certain geriatric assessment measures that seem to be consistently predictive of outcomes. And whether or not those same exact tools are the best, you know, sort of, and the same thresholds um, and cut points for the, you know, for impairment uh, apply to you know, CLL, probably not um, as far as predicting a specific outcome. So I think that piece, you know, we're, we have data in individual disease settings now where we're starting to see how do we use and fine tune to predict outcomes better in any given setting. But as far as using it to manage patients, it's scalable now. And and it is, it is, you know, Heidi, you said something really, really important, which is you get more information. I mean, sometimes it's like you're doing CAT scans, you're getting more information, you're just getting a more rounded picture. And, and William, I'm sure you've gotten across some physicians who would say, well, I mean, I know, I mean, I'm a, I've done this for 20 years, I have the clinical acumen that will tell me who would tolerate this therapy or not? I mean, I've been doing this for a while and all of this. What, have you come across folks who, I don't want to say nihilistic, but they say, well, you know, I mean, I I know by talking to my patient and examining them, if they can tolerate um, whole pox or not. For clinicians who have been doing it for a while, and I wouldn't dismiss their abilities to know their patients or to have seen outcomes um, and certainly, um, we've heard plenty during the course of developing this and creating guidelines from people who are pretty adamant that they don't need any additional information. I would say the counterpoint, the strongest counterpoint is whenever we've done some objective studies of the so-called eyeball test that clinicians do, looking at the patient, seeing them come in with a cane, making a decision or hearing that they <laughs> climb mountains and that means they can do something and you do the actual testing, it doesn't align that well. So performance status even of the 
usual kind, the ECOG performance status or a Karnofsky score does not predict outcomes the way a formalized assessment does, no matter how good we think we are. And so the data is pretty strong that you need that information. Those same clinicians with the information in some studies like one Supriya led um, called COACH, they do change their behavior. And I would argue the experienced physicians are actually the most humble in my experience who say, you know, I've seen a lot of this and I appreciate having more information. I wish I had it in a you know digestible form because I would like to use it and, and they will. But too often the setting is such that they don't have the information and they're too busy to have to figure out how to do it. So this is where care models, I think, need to be fit in that allow our clinicians to be clinicians and include this information that they that they can get from the geriatric assessment um, and not assume that their you know, eyeball test is sufficient to do this. But, but do you agree, Supriya, that it's, it's uh, some of the pushbacks, and I've heard that from several folks, that they say, um, I, I appreciate geriatric assessment. I, I get it. I'm seeing 25 patients uh, in my clinic. Half of them are over the age of 75. We take high disc cutoff. I just don't have the time to do, I mean, it, it's a real issue, right? Everybody's pressed on time. I guess to make more people use it, it has to be friendly to the schedule and to the time. Have you all thought about that particular aspect? Oh, absolutely. It is a real issue. I mean, I think in general, and I know you've talked about this in your podcast, we're all stressed. We don't have time. Our healthcare system isn't reimbursing us for what matters or what is value-based, you know, so having good conversations, keeping people out of the hospital, making sure they go into hospice at the right timing rather than getting more treatments that might hurt them. You know, that's not reimbursable necessarily in our current healthcare system. But I do, you know, I, I do think there's pushback with time, but as William said, so there's data to show that when those results are provided easily to clinicians, they will use it to inform their decision. So we've done vignette-based studies where we sort of, in, in vignettes, provide the information a little sneakily. You know, your patient has this problem and that problem, and they definitely change what they do with their treatments when they know somebody has significant functional problems or falls or cognition issues and um, using tests that they would not normally do in clinic. <laughs> So we've done that through vignettes, vignette studies where we give doctors vignettes and tell, ask them what they will do. In addition, as William pointed out, we've got large randomized trials, two of which I've led in our um, the University of Rochester NCI Community Oncology Research Program, or NCORE, which is an NCI-funded network, where community oncology practices around the country enroll onto NCI-funded cancer control trials. So we actually were able to train clinical teams in busy community oncology settings to do geriatric assessment. The teams learned how to do it, and the oncologists got the information from their teams. No geriatricians, nothing. You know, the oncology teams were doing it, and they got a summary of the information with a checklist, sort of like Dr. Atul Gawande's work, right? Give someone a checklist, they'll use it. They looked at the checklist, they talked about it in the clinical setting, 
They had better communication. It led to more interventions. This with one kind of communication study funded by PCORI, and we did it by, with an NCI R01. It reduced toxicities and it um, reduced falls. So just one time with a checklist. And so it's such a powerful intervention and we can train community oncology practices who are busy than us in academics to do this. What is the barrier? I think the barriers are people just don't understand it. You know, they aren't comfortable because they weren't trained in it. I think people think they know what they're doing with older adults. They think that they know how to do this without the information. Um, I'm not sure that that's true. I don't know how to do it. And I take care of older adults all the time without the information. And I think that in busyness, we prioritize and people will prioritize what they know. Everybody is going to pick up that new diagnostic procedure. Everyone is going to pick up the new medicine, the new chemotherapy, or the new immunotherapy. These cost a billion dollars. You're like, you know, it's just nuts. But this simple way of capturing patient-reported outcomes, which has such powerful impact in reducing toxicities and keeping people healthy and able to get treatment, you know, the barriers, I think, are not as big as they seem. We need champions. We don't need doctors to do it. Their teams can do it. Nurses can do it. Advanced practice practitioners can do it. Front desk staff can do it. We're happy to train whoever. So I think we're learning how to overcome these barriers now. And I, I we can go into a little bit of the conversation about the ASCO guideline because the new guideline will really help with this. No, no, and we will. But you know, you stole these words. I was <laughs> just going to tell you about the novel therapies you know, the ones that get you on the podium at ASH or ASCO on the plenary session and things like that. It's reverse incentive almost. You come in, we're just going to do like, you know, you know, draw a clock <laughs> and uh, I'm going to predict delirium. I mean, we, we're sometimes our own worst enemy because we created this thing that this is what's going to you be going to be rewarded on. So you're absolutely correct. There's another element of this. Hadi, I want to, I want to, We'll get into the guidelines in a little bit. I want to focus a little bit on the communication piece because I think that um, there's always this uh, perception occasionally. And I learned this really from William when he worked at the University of Chicago, which really was a very valuable lesson. You walk into a room and sometimes you've already kind of almost determined just based on the age of the patient, how they looked and things like that. And based on the record that they may not even tolerate a particular therapy. Uh, you haven't done CGA or any of that stuff. And there's this like inherent notion that I, you know, the and, and the communication piece, you know, because you already established this bias, you already communicating in a way that want to make the patient choose a different therapy. Do, do you see that? Maybe I'm completely off base here, but I wonder if some of this is prevalent in the geriatric population. Yeah, no, I'll I'll speak to that. And then Supriya might actually want to comment since she's done some landmark work looking at communication specifically um, in in the context of the GAP70 trial, or correct me if I'm wrong on all of that, Supriya. But you're I completely agree with I think what you're getting at is that you know we all have bias, <laughs> whether we acknowledge it or not. And there is a, a sort of an aging related bias that the provider may have walking into the room 
you know, based on, you know, sometimes you read the chart and you read things and you read their couple of comorbid conditions and their age 82, you already have in your mind, you have to prepare ahead of time, right? What do I expect we're going to be talking about? And how do I think this conversation is going to go? That's that we have to do that to be prepared for the conversation. But you're bringing into that conversation already some perspectives that maybe are not objectively <laughs> verified because you're, and I see this in my own, this is where I do conduct a geriatric assessment with all of my new patients. And I free, you know, I prepare ahead of time. And so I go in the room and I read the chart and I say, oh my gosh, this person has lots and lots of comorbidities. And, you know, here, here's their age. And here's, here's where we're, I'm expecting we might go in this adjuvant discussion. And then we have a full geriatric assessment done, including some uh, more detailed functional measures and their function and sort of their, how they are essentially handling the burdens of their comorbidity is very different <laughs> than what I expected going in the room. And so my geriatric assessment has, and I'm a geriatric oncologist, but I went in, you know, prepped to expect to find this person over here. And, you know, I, if my PA went in first or the fellow, or if it's me and you go through everything, you're like, you know, they're, they're functionally, they're doing really well. Their physical performance is great. Cognition screen, perfect. You know, they're a different person than I thought. So there is that bias that, you know, your communication is going to be influenced. If you don't have that information, <laughs> that more objective information, your, your communication is not going to be the same. And then I would also say that our patients come in biased. So I can't tell you how many times, and I'm sure you have all heard this, right? That, if you're thinking about a patient who might need chemotherapy and it's an you know 80 year old patient, but I have a geriatric assessment, they are fit. This is a fit patient. They have an aggressive cancer. It's likely to come back during their lifespan. I know their life expect we've done all the work. I'm going to recommend treatment because the cancer is the biggest issue. And I think they're going to be resilient to the treatment. And the patient is shocked <laughs> that I'm bringing up. They came in expecting me not to recommend chemotherapy because they're 80 years old. And they're like, I'm 80 years old. How long do I really have to live? And I said, well, I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you based on all these data that the range I estimate is way out here. <laughs> so, and they're always surprised. The patients are surprised by it. So I think there are a couple of pieces here with respect to education that on both sides, you know, you can't have an informed discussion if you don't have all the data. And it's true for both the provider, but also for the patient. And that's why I'll turn it back to Sabria, messing up your flow, but... She might be able to comment on that a little yeah, bit. I mean, this was in the coach study, as I, which was already alluded to. We um, did this in in almost forty practices across the country, and over I think over three hundred oncologists participated. And when they got the, we were audio recorded all the clinical the clinical visit after the geriatric assessment. And in the at the sites where the oncologists received the geriatric assessment information, they had different conversations with the patients. Um, they talked more about aging. They talked more about medication management. They talked more about goals and preferences. And they talked more about adapting and sort of personalizing the treatment according to fitness level, which didn't happen in the usual care arm to that to that extent. And so there was a difference in the quality of conversation. So this is goes back to the point that when oncologists get the information, they use it. I mean, in our studies, we didn't tell them they had to use it. They could have thrown it in the garbage, but they actually used it because they found it to be valuable. So the feasibility issues is how to get it going in the clinic. It's not about whether or not the oncologist needs it or wants to use it. When they get it, they use it. 
and and all of the studies have shown that it's just really ha- the how to do it. Yeah, no, that's a great <laughs> point. So, William, all of these issues going in geriatric oncology, in terms of feasibility, improvement of outcomes, and so forth, is that what led to ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, to decide we need to have guidelines to help people? Like what what led um, what led things? Because I'm not gonna lie, I am I, I have like a love and hate relationship with guidelines. <laughs> Because I kind of feel sometimes when you put guidelines, you kind of put everybody in a box. And I think it takes away from the nuance of things. So I think there are some people who love guidelines because for reimbursement reasons and things like that. But uh, tell us what led to the ASCO guidelines and your thoughts about whether guidelines take away from the nuances of, of things. Yeah, great points. Um, so there, the very first ASCO guidelines came out in 2018. And as we talked earlier, those were based on the initial work, the predictive work or observational work about predicting toxicities, giving us information about life expectancy. So, so they've been around. Well, since that time, a number of studies have come out and there were two, I would say, that are um, sort of inspired though it's time to update guidelines. And they're worth mentioning. Um, I'm happy to be uh, the last author on both of them. Um, and the first author on one is the study we've been hearing about, the GAP-70 study, randomized trial in the NCORE network led by Supriya and the team at Rochester. There was another study we call the GAIN study. That study in JAM Oncology, very similar, randomized large numbers and showed that not only could we predict toxicities with a geriatric assessment, but we could actually affect outcomes. So by intervening with supportive care outcomes, by affecting the decisions people made, um, toxicities went down 10 to 20%, depending on the population in which study, the chance that you would complete uh, goals, discussions, and complete an advanced directive went up in the GAIN, GAIN study. So now we had those two studies and about three or four others that are randomized that showed it's efficacious to have the information and act on it and change outcomes. So ASCO said, made it number two on their list of it's time to update the guidelines. We really need to go out and have a stronger statement about what needs to happen. So the new guidelines that are just uh, coming out say, if you're over 65, you pretty much should be doing this for your patients who are over a certain age because the information is valuable enough. In addition, it says, you know, we hear you, this complete or comprehensive geriatric sentiments kind of hard. We've done a couple of studies to your point, Chadi, that says, why, why can't you do this, right? When we ask people, have you seen guidelines? To your guidelines point, you ask someone, have you seen these guidelines? And then they say, yes, they're two to four times more likely to do some version of a geriatric assessment and to act on it. If they have not seen guidelines, they're much less likely so the baseline background to guidelines, I think, is is a good thing to kind of set the bar, say, like, this is really what we should do. Like, ASCO can have a big influence to say this is the way to approach these patients. Having said that, um, when we talk to people and 25% said they do it, they say two reasons they don't they don't do it. One, I don't know what to do with this information. You, you gave it to me, but what do I do with it? You know, Supriya and their study trained people. This is what you do with it. In our study at Gain, we had a nurse practitioner who took the information and helped interpret it and interact with the patients. The second thing they say is, 
it's too hard, it's too long, and I don't have the resources. I, I don't know where you expect me to do this. So um, one part of the guideline was to say, we are going to make something very practical, boil down the geriatric assessment to the essential elements, explain which tool it is, tell you what the thresholds are, and make it incredibly easy for people to fill out and have the information in a digested form. So we have this, what we're calling practical geriatric assessment. It's one page. It says, here's the domain, here's a tool, here's a threshold, and here's what we think you should do so that we can make it as simple while still being validated as possible so that the uptake will be good. And also to go on super popular podcasts and tell everybody about it. So um, they will come watch Healthcare Unfiltered and be oh, inspired they're, they're to better, tell their doctors. They're better. They're better. <laughs> but but, but uh, Heidi, is, are the guidelines now basically recommending uh, what you do in certain situations? So for example, if this is what you get, I mean, I know you should not give Ativan if you fail X, Y, like how granular are they in terms of guidelines? So the guidelines are, the the focus is around performing geriatric assessment prior to initiation of systemic therapy specifically. And there are specific recommendations to address the, what do you do with this information? But they're focused on the scalable part, you know, to your earlier point. The part that applies to everyone, which is if you identify these vulnerabilities, it, we, there is literally a table <laughs> that's associated with the, the pragmatic geriatric assessment that I think you know William or Supriya will speak to later that says, this is what you can do. Here is a, some rec very specific recommendations if someone has cognitive impairment, if someone has physical function impairment, if you identify any of these things. So you gather the data, how do you use it to inform your management? So it's really focusing on that, you know, sort of the holistic supportive management of the patient. The guidelines do not say, should you give X or Y, you know, dosing of adjuvant therapy? No, I appreciate the fact that it tells you what to do, but, but Supriya, we, we just talked about how things are changing in oncology. So, you know, you've got IO therapy, you've got very, very different treatments that the toxicity of which uh, is certainly different than cytotoxic chemotherapy. How much did these guidelines address these newer therapies, understanding that the toxicity is vastly different? Yeah, you you speak like an oncologist. Maybe you are. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we talked to the ASCO, you know, um, reviewer committee, and this is their exact question to us. Okay. So it, you know, I, I, a lot of our studies had, at least not a lot, but a few of our studies had patients receiving immunotherapy in them. So there's a study outside of um, in Australia that used that looked at geriatric oncology co-management care that included patients with immunotherapy, and that that those patients also benefited from from a geriatric assessment in in terms of quality of life outcomes. Um, and then now we are we know that there are various other studies that show things like IEDLs, instrumental activities of daily living, do predict toxicities um, for older patients receiving um, immunotherapy too. And then also that at the older age range, sometimes you know there's population-based studies now that show immunotherapy may not even be beneficial for patients who are at the very oldest age ranges, for example, in lung cancer. So this sort of, should we do immunotherapy because it's quote unquote easier? Um, I think it's still a big question for older, more frail adults. Um, 
And I do think the geriatric assessment, as Heidi pointed out earlier, identifies issues like cognition, like physical performance issues, where we can in institute supportive care for them and that, and that they'll do better anyway. So we may not have the same predictive models for patients receiving immunotherapy, but certainly the basis of understand, understanding health and providing management support is, um, is also um, important for patients receiving immunotherapy and is included in the guidelines. Part of me thinks it's, it, it may be something that, you know, your group sh should think about um, s separately to an extent. I mean, I don't know, I'm not a geriatrician, but, but I, 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 do, I do feel that there's an element, they may not benefit, obviously, from efficacy to Supriya's point, but uh, the model, as I understand it, allows to predict toxicity. So if it's toxicity-wise, because they're so different, and I've been completely fooled with immunotherapy. Like when I really thought somebody's going to do so poorly, like I, I, I failed to predict anything pertaining to IO because we were all learning about this uh, in, in, in terms of this. Why can't we get rid of performance tests in clinical trials and replace that with CGA. I mean, at the end of the day, we keep telling people since for I, I've been hearing this for 10 years, performance test does not always reflect this, but every clinical trial has that. And I think until we start embracing CGA as more powerful tool and get rid of the performance test from trials, uh, the field will remain to be skeptical. And I think, are, have you been trying to push for that? Yes. So Chadi, I, I ask that question all the time and whatever venue we're in <laughs> to everyone we can ask it to say, why can't we add just some core? You don't have to put a full geriatric assessment in table one, but every table one of every trial that is going to be providing the new evidence that supports treatment, <laughs> the new standard of care for largely older patients all across this country, we never see ADLs and IDLs or even comorbidity. Heaven forbid there was a comorbidity assessment. Like go look at a table one for any New England Journal Medicine article. It's never in there, right? It's just performance status zero to one. And it doesn't apply. We don't know if any of our patients were in there. So we've been talking about this for years. We've tried to you know uh, advocate with different stakeholders. We've written a lot about it, um, you know, proposed even something called the table one initiative, you know, where we just, every table one, like we, every, every single clinical trial. And this is, I think, a, a huge missing piece for how do we use geriatric assessment in practice to adjust our treatment. A lot of it depends on having geriatric assessment elements in clinical trials, because at the end of the day, every trial is not going to be an older adult specific trial. We have to use the large randomized trials that include older and middle-aged adults and understand how they apply to an older adult population. And we have to know what's the function of this population, what's the comorbidity. And if we do that, we'll be able to really expand the evidence base for older adults. I think it would also reinforce the importance of geriatric assessment measures to clinicians and, and oncology providers, because you know while the evidence is, is accumulating that it's geriatric assessment is important for improving outcomes, and in fact, I think just to throw out a number, the number needed to prevent harm from Supriya's GAP-70 study for older patients with advanced stage cancer who had a geriatric assessment done to prevent toxicity was five, right? That's like huge. If that were a drug, <laughs> like a plenary session, right? I think five great, 
five people who had a geriatric assessment. One of them avoided a, a grade three to five toxicity. But as we generate those data, it's still not going to be enough if we don't also include some of these elements in all clinical trials. And that's still a big push that I hope you can, in your next podcast, you're going to have the ear of somebody important. No, no, for sure. But, but you know, the, you know, William, I have to tell you, like, even in younger patients, I think oncologists do a poor job in predicting toxicity. Because I think, you know, I'm a big proponent of real world evidence, and I get a lot of bad um, uh, pushback from this. But the reality is clinical trials are very biased in terms of who you enroll, and they don't always reflect real world data. So, so even in a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old, I don't always believe we can predict the level of toxicities and the grade of toxicities. Are you guys trying to see, you know what, even a pilot, let's take that model, label it, uh, you know, youthful assessment and see if we can apply it to younger than 65. See, that's your next project. No, I'm serious. Like, have you looked at that? Yeah. I mean, I want to make a, a couple of points. So the, the age issue that you started with, we kind of come full circle. So what is the highest, you know, what age do we consider older? It applies just as much to any age. Like if someone is having issues, we should be identifying them and dealing with them and making sure we um, have that information. And I agree with you. If if we need to change the language again, that's fine. Let's make it something that people will feel like I'm getting what I need. I do want to talk to one example of that, which is in the transplant world and a little kudos to my transplant colleagues, my bone marrow transplant colleagues, Andy Arts, Ashley Roscoe, um, and others, um, in which they've looked at these younger patients who are going to undergo a bone marrow transplant, not in a randomized session, but to put people into different categories and do a pre-transplant assessments and say, can we help prevent in a big investment situation, people over 60, you know, younger patients and have better outcomes. And um, Andy's study published in, in Blood makes the case that we can. We can do much better selection in who is we're investing in those resources for. And so there is some work being done. And the second piece is um, a little bit of a, you know, it's coming. So we have a grant from a foundation called the Rising Tide Foundation called the Geriatric Oncology Treatment Optimization Program. It's five randomized clinical trials, sort of phase two style, 200, 300 patients in five different cancer scenarios, but with a very similar PGA style assessment that says, we're gonna look at questions pertinent to those populations. There's a CAR T1, a lung one, a prostate cancer one. Each one, we're going to we're going to take your question and say, let's get some of that evidence in a trial setting with a four million dollar grant from a foundation who cares, and start to generate the evidence so that people will see how valuable it is to know in a high quality study what really matters. So we are doing it. Um, this is a cancer and aging research group sponsored. Um, project that has some infrastructure, right? The challenge, as you know, in the Alliance is we've seen our colleagues come up with wonderful concepts and five years later, they're still going through some committee to try to get an assessment in, in, in put into the studies and we've moved past that. We do need, along with the broad-based approach, targeted appropriate questions that also include this geriatric assessment because then others will pay attention. Oncologists will insist on it. Patients will, 
and you can push payers to say, you know, you really need to have the appropriate care. Heidi, you, you do a lot of work with AML, amongst other work, but how do you integrate the uh, the precision medicine piece, the um, information on mutations, on genes, on, on that data with the simple geriatric assessment? Is there any type of correlation? Um, uh, and And when you have a patient that fails the geriatric assessment or doesn't do well, but you really have, they, they have an IDH1 or IDH2 mutation. I mean, is it, how hard is it to say I'm not, how do you handle scenarios where you have a targeted therapy and you need to do the NGS and sequencing and you have the clinical assessment? How much do they match each other, I guess? Um, no, I think it's a great question. And from a clinical trial standpoint, we haven't quite gotten there yet. I, I will maybe mention that first. So there, and you probably know this, there's a, the MyeloMatch initiative, uh, which is an intergroup initiative looking at uh, developing a precision medicine clinical trial framework for AML, which will currently focuses on both the, you know, designing trials that are specific to the disease biology, which of course is underway and, you know, more and more targeted therapies. And we've seen a lot of enhancements in care in that regard. But the other piece of that for the older patient is a recognition that you can't have precision medicine if the only precision you have is specific to the disease and not to the patient who has the disease, right? And so there are two pieces to that. And we are actually still working towards, as William mentioned, you know, how to design the sort of the complementary geriatric assessment component. So you have the phenotype of the patient and you're able to take that into context and study that, I mean, study how do people do, you know, because patients who are fit for and more intensive treatment, obviously are probably fit for something that's less intensive. But if we have our quote, not fit for intensive treatment, they may do very well with several other lines of treatment. And so what those thresholds holds are will differ based on all the new therapies and the expected toxicities that come along and the challenges that we're not incorporating, you know, kind of brings us back to the clinical trial piece that we're not yet incorporating, you know, the second half of the precision equation into clinical trials routinely. So we can't actually make these observations that we want to have, you know, so in real life, you know, we're, we're assessing them in a very practical way. You know, what do we know about the, the drugs <laughs> and, you know, what can we gather about the patient? And if I, if this patient is vulnerable in X, Y, and Z ways, you know, you have to use your, obviously your best clinical judgment. Do I think this vulnerable, vulnerable patient is still going to derive potential benefit and at least have a more informed discussion? I mean, I think that's a big piece of it in AML, right? Is that you, if doing nothing is, we know what the outcome is there. And sometimes that may still be a choice, but having an informed discussion, you know, what are the risks to you? You can't have that discussion without having more information about. It's like the seven and three dilemma for AML is always in fit patients. And I don't think anybody really truly measures the fitness. They just look at age and other things. So, so Priya, what other things the guidelines address? Like what other things do you talk about? Transplant, allogeneic, autologic, like what? Tell us more about the guidelines that we may have not covered. I think the guideline is super flexible. It it doesn't, it kind of goes through a general approach to all older adults receiving systemic treatment, no matter what the population is. And then as um, was discussed, there's the practical geriatric assessment, which we're providing to clinicians because we've heard about barriers 
to make it easier for them. And then the last point is resource setting, which is the level of resource that the practice has and offering different um, ways that the, the different clinics can manage based on their resource setting. So here are the highest priorities pieces of this that you can do if you're lower resourced. If you have resources and you wanna do more and can do more here, other here's sort of layering it so that there's, um, you know, we're not kind of trying to tell people you have to do the, the grand slam full thing right away. We're just asking every clinic to get started in some way that they can so that older adults are getting the best care that they can now. William, how what what plans do you guys have to do, you know, spread the word? I mean, obviously podcasts, papers, all of these things, but I think, you know, you'd like to see more uptake of this. What, what do you expect? Um, I guess, how do you expect the oncology community will receive these guidelines in the next six months or so? Yeah, we're optimistic now that we have the guidelines to point to that, People are going to say, they, they, you know, I, I feel optimistic that oncologists want to do the right thing, that they really do use the information when they have it, and they're really looking for a way to have this there. And I think the guidelines coming out will help set that context that we've tried to create a scenario where you can use this and everybody will use a similar thing. And to get the word out, there's like three groups, right? So one group is the focus of this is oncologists. At the end of the day, our community oncologists who take care of 80% of cancer patients are going to have to change if something's going to change. And so they will have to be convinced. They also have to be convinced that it's not all on them, that their clinic can help them do it, that they're going to get the support that they need. So that's one population. The second one that we probably talk about too little sometimes is the patients and families themselves. So increasingly as they know, and as our patient partners and scoreboard who we work closely with, they say, hey, why didn't we talk about my personal situation? Why? I heard there are these new guidelines and assessments I'm supposed to get, let me get them. So patients we have engaged and we hope that they're gonna be our advocates as much as anything. And then there is a sort of policy push, like how do we make this so that the infrastructure can change so that policymakers, you know, and you almost always, I don't want to say hope, but someone who comes along in an influential position who says, I benefited from this, or I wish I had benefited from it, we need to make this standard, or we need to pay for it in a better way. I do want to tell everybody, we've made two videos at, with ASCO that explain at a very simple level how to do this. Um, we have an infographic. And we have websites both at CARG and ASCO that have updated this with chemo talks tools. So we'll have a whole kit of things to go along with just the guidelines so that they're easy to use and they have resources to use them wherever they are. I'll have to, I know we're coming on time, but you know, I have to say you said something that intrigued me and, and Heidi and Supriya, maybe you can comment on this. I think payers could play a role here, right? I mean, because from a payer, if I'm paying, I'd rather my patient not be in the emergency room or in the hospital costing a lot of money with toxicity management. So I wonder actually if payers eventually, they might mandate and they say, this is part of the payment structure that you have to do it. Is that too far-fetched, uh, Heidi, to think, or and Supriya? I don't know that it's too far-fetched. I mean, it's certainly been discussed, you know, sort of, sort of, I think there's a little bit of apprehension about, and I think you mentioned this earlier too, sort of that black and white, 
you know, what if you happen to miss it because something else was going on in the visit and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're going to be dinged from <laughs> quality standpoints, uh, you know, so everybody gets a little bit nervous um, when we put, you know, when we talk about really considering this as a, you know, a, what we might consider a true quality metric that is tied to payment. I will say that were it the case, it would get done. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, from my standpoint, you know, whatever results in us getting better care for our patients, I, you know, <laughs> I'm interested in talking about it, but, <laughs> but I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that from a, a research standpoint that many members of the, um, you know, the research community are, are looking at is you know, generating some of those additional studies that are looking at outcomes and endpoints that tie more directly to some of the things that payers are, are looking at. And we've heard about some of those today, but again, you know, things like hospitalizations, for example, and we have already good data on that, but all of these, you know, costs. So we saw a nice presentation at ASCO this year on sort of the potential for cost savings in the setting of conducting a geriatric assessment. And so I think those types of data are also going to be really helpful as we start to, you know, we want to empower, <laughs> you know, anyone at any institution who's trying to change the culture and get, you know, sort of a routine geriatric assessment embedded within the practice. So you're talking about practice change, being able to go to your, you know, to the supervisors, to the clinic, to the hospital to say, not only are these the outcomes that patients, you know, benefit from, but here are the other outcomes you're going to save money, <laughs> you know, fewer hospitalizations, which is actually the OP30, you can tie it to OP35 probably right now. Um, so I think there yeah. are opportunities there, but I'll, yeah. Let Supriya have the last word then. I'll just, well, no, we're going to have each one has to have a last word. Oh, yeah. so, so, so you go, you go, you go first, Supriya. Yeah, I'll we... just, I mean, I'll just say I think there's already been some changes that has helped up us in our clinic. This time-based billing has really helped. So I can, you know, my um, nurse is doing part of the assessment. We have a physical therapist and an occupational therapist that are not billing independently for their time that are doing parts of the assessment. You know, we have technicians that do parts of the assessment. Um, sometimes my my advanced practice pra a practitioner who's very well trained to do some of the counseling goes in. I can bill for that time now, you know, and um, you know, and I'm billing time based, which allows me to maximize. Like I'm billing for the time that my team is doing the geriatric assessment with. So, I you know you can you can make it a, a time that, you know based thing if you needed to, or you know maybe your APPs have an extra half hour to do it or you do a little piece at a time, depending when the patient comes in, um, but you can bill for that and that's helped us. So that's my last word. I think it's improving already. William, your last word. Yeah, I think the, I think the making it have the return on investment that all the um, stakeholders care about is gonna make, make this go. In addition to the time-based billing that Supriya just mentioned, there are existing CPT codes to bill for the actual assessments themselves done by the team. So finding out ways to make the costs lower because the benefits are already there is gonna make a big difference for the field. I also just wanna comment the real world data piece of this that you mentioned, Chadi, and that I would encourage is if we have a common measure that's used all the time, when we go to look at the data, it'll be more consistent. And I think that is a way for us to complement, supplement the trial necessities with real world data, but that's the same set of measures and that the practical geriatric assessment will help us in that front too. 
So it's going to take all of that to sort of push us across the finish line for this becoming just like um, someone said, I need it to be like a lab result. I look at my labs and I'm like, they're anemic, they're this, they're this, and I'm going to do something. And we get to the point where our providers can look at that and say, labs, geriatric assessment, I know what to do. They'll do it, right? It'll just be part of routine care. And then that will, that will mean we can advance the science in the way that other things and details we need to do. Heidi, your last word. Gosh, okay. My last words would be, I would just encourage everyone listening to really take a look at the guidelines, look at the level of evidence, the benefits that your patients will get <laughs> from a geriatric assessment. I mean, it's really quite powerful when you look at the outcome data that's now accumulated. Um, and I think also take a look at the pragmatic geriatric assessment, because I think the package that's there, I think it's sufficient to be able to roll out and implement some some level of geriatric assessment in any resource setting, whether it's printing it out, you know, printing out this nice tool and handing it to a patient <laughs> versus incorporating it into Epic and, and getting a lot more fancy. There is a way to do it now with the tools that are, will be coming out through the, the guideline and ASCO. So please read the guidelines and take a look at um, the- Really, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We have to take a picture here because we want to make sure that we put this on uh, Twitter. This is part of making sure people will read the guidelines. Hopefully I'll choose the best one. And uh, I know that uh, Artie is, um, would have been very proud of all of you and um, you know for, for all of the work you're doing. So I really can't thank you enough for being on Healthcare Unfiltered and uh, look forward to having you again. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. Thanks, Shadi. It's great to see you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your support. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, let your friends and colleagues know about it and write a brief review so everyone can find this podcast anywhere you consume podcasts. You can also watch these episodes on my YouTube channel, spread the word, let folks know about it, and always let me know what you think and any suggestions or ideas by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. If you are a loyal listener and you want one of the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirts, you must send me a note. And while you're at it, of course, rate and give the show five stars if you think we deserve five stars. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Mark Twain. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Until next time, take care.